You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Who's got your back when the river's rising? House payment didn't make it and the taxes do. A dark tunnel with no light shining. You're thinking going under and you're thinking you're through. The Grand River was laughing at the top of the bank. The other bank was tightening up the screws. Foreclosure sat on a close horizon. Then the river rose up and wet our shoes. Who's got your back when the river's rising? Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 24th day of October, 2010. I'd like to welcome everyone to the podcast and invite them all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to websites that support The Corbett Report, and which The Corbett Report supports. And speaking of support, this week I would wholeheartedly like to thank Paul, Richard, Connie, and Patrice from the USA, Peter from the UK, and Ingve from Norway for all of them sending in very generous donations to The Corbett Report through the donate button on CorbettReport.com. Your donations were gratefully received and appreciated, and thank you so much for helping to make this possible. We have a lot of news and information to get to today, as always, so without further ado, let's get straight to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 24th day of October 2010. And now for the real news. A series of reports on contactless payment technologies appeared in rapid succession this week, once again highlighting the coordinated international agenda to create a global cashless monetary control grid. Last week, Sony announced a partnership with RFID technology company HID Global to supply contactless smart card reader devices to laptop manufacturers. The devices will combine Sony's industry-leading contactless card technology with HID Global's identity verification technology setting the stage for a time when people will be able to sign into their laptop or pay for an item simply by bringing their RFID-enabled identity cards near the computer. Also this week, the European Payments Council released a white paper on the standardization of procedures across Europe for implementing mobile contactless payment systems to allow Europeans to pay for goods and services directly from their bank or credit card accounts using their mobile phones. Not to be outdone, the United Arab Emirates is now bragging that contactless e-payments will be as common there as in any other part of the globe within two years, due in large part to the growing metro network, which is being used to get wary UAE residents used to the idea of paying for goods and services through an RFID-embedded card. Far from being an unusually busy week for cashless payment system news, these reports merely highlight the nearly daily stream of information conditioning the public to accept a future society where all transactions take place in digital form, and every such transaction is monitored, processed, stored, and data mined by government intelligence agencies and the multi-billion dollar corporations that own them. Next month, Barclays will start issuing contactless debit cards, which allow you to make payments under £10 without entering a PIN number. And this is not just about cards. The contactless technology in these 
is now being transferred to these two. There's a growing feeling that the mobile phone could become the digital wallet of the future. And that could not just make cash irrelevant, it could make cards obsolete too. So it's the mobile phone which may become the best way to pay. Here's how one expert sees life in five or ten years' time. When you go to buy a cup of coffee, you'll just tap. Uh, if you're buying a pair of shoes, you'll punch in your pin and tap. And if you're buying a car, you'll speak and your voice or your fingerprint will identify you and then you'll punch in a pin and tap. Predictably, the establishment media does not afford any time to critics of this nightmare Orwellian society to criticize these cashless payment systems for giving banks new ways to inflate and leverage imaginary digital currencies in new and ever more brazen attempts to defraud the public, for giving corporations unparalleled access to information about people's shopping and spending habits to construct detailed, personalized customer profiles and relational databases, or for ceding power to governments to implement carbon rationing cards or other schemes to micro-engineer society in hitherto unimaginable ways, but instead choose to give one representative of a British retailing group nine seconds of screen time to raise concerns about pricing under this system. What we're concerned about is that contactless is, being, is, is a replacement for cash, but it's being priced at a much higher rate for debit which is about four times the price of a cash transaction for a retailer. Now, attempts to demonize cash in the run-up to a wholesale rollout of the coming cashless society has reached almost comedic levels. This Wednesday, the Danish city of Aarhus began touting a contactless payment card called the School Card, specifically for school children to have a way to pay for goods around the city without carrying cash. In justifying the scheme, one of the project's corporate partners states that it is well known that receipts and coins carry bacteria, and this can represent a danger of infection, particularly when handled by children around mealtimes. The fact that corporations are launching multi-million dollar cashless payment trial projects using school children as guinea pigs ostensibly to solve a problem that could be taken care of by encouraging children to wash their hands before eating comes as no surprise to observers who have noted that the cashless society is an essential next step for the oligarchical interests who have much to gain from being able to remotely and digitally track, trace, and control every aspect of our lives. As filmmaker Aaron Russo warned in interviews shortly before his death in 2007, Nicholas Rockefeller had confided in him how this type of identity control cashless payment society was going to be used by the elite powers behind the throne of global geopolitics to bring in a technological tyranny the likes of which the tyrants of the past could only have dreamt of. And uh, the, whole, the, the whole agenda is to create a one world government where everybody has an, R, R, an RFID chip implanted in them, all money is to be um, in those chips, right? There'll be no more cash. And this is given me straight from Rockefeller himself. This is what they want to accomplish. And all money will be in your chips. And so, any, so not, instead of having cash, anytime you have money in your, in, your, in your chip, they can take out whatever they want to take out whenever they want to. If they say you owe us this much money in taxes, they just deduct it out of your chip digitally. Total control. Total control. And if you're like me or you, and you're protesting what they're doing, they can just turn off your chip. And you have nothing. You can't buy food. You can't do anything. It's total control of the people. Earlier this year, the Corbett Report talked to Alex Jones of Infowars.com 
about how the general public can resist the implementation of this cashless control grid. We need to expand our barter community. Even if you live in a city, uh, you can uh, raise fish, you can grow small crops, you can start bartering with your neighbors, try to use cash as much as you can, get your money out of big mega banks uh, like J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, uh, and, and other big mega banks that are part of this cartel, support local um, credit unions, go talk to the credit unions, get involved, educate people about this threat so that they're aware of this. Uh, again, this is designed so they can bring in total taxation, bankrupt almost everyone, and drive you onto government welfare so you're even more dependent so they can carry out the eugenics operations against you and your family. I mean, number one, just educate yourselves on how evil this controlling scientific technocracy is and realize that Eisenhower in, 60, uh, in 1961 warned about this development, and here we are 40 years later, and it's unfolding. Uh, create alternative legal currencies, uh, trade in silver and gold. Uh, we, we see in the U.S. they're trying to come in with million-dollar fines for garage sales, for swap meets. They're trying to shut down gun shows. Uh, stop shopping at places like Walmart and big mega stores. They are economically conquering us and putting us on modern plantations, similar to what was done to the Native Americans. We must realize that we're being put into a scientifically designed prison. We must awaken to this and do everything we can to stop it. In other news this week, the idea that Anwar al-Awlaki is being groomed as the next Emmanuel Goldstein-like war on terror boogeyman was further evidenced by a new video message from the dastardly al-Siyaida mastermind to the Muslim world on the 10th anniversary of the al-Siyaida attack on the USS Cole. In the video message, he warns Muslims that Islam is facing great dangers and is in need of guidance from Muslim scholars. Observers note that the fact that this message was delivered by al-Awlaki and not the animated corpse of Osama bin Laden that has delivered previous video addresses to raise the specter of the war on terror during heated American political campaigns is a sign that al-Awlaki is now one of the key players in this fictitious terror organization. Embarrassingly for the Defense Department that is attempting to use Alaki as a justification for the trillion-dollar-a-year military-industrial invasion, drone bombing, and occupation of Middle Eastern countries, it emerged earlier this week that Alaki was invited to dine at the Pentagon with the Secretary of the Army as part of an outreach program to the Muslim world shortly after 9-11. He was supposedly there to present ideas about moderate Islam to the Secretary, but the FBI was investigating him for his ties to the alleged 9-11 hijackers at the very same time as he was being wined and dined at the Pentagon. Since his one-on-one -on -one meeting with the Secretary of the Army, he has gone on to puppeteer every major act of terrorism under the Obama administration, from the Fort Hood shooter to the Christmas Day bomber to the Times Square bomber. Many are now noting that there, this is nothing new for the CIA-founded and run Al-Qaeda organization, with several key U.S. government agencies including the White House, the Secret Service, NORAD, and the FAA, all using computer software developed by a company which was founded by specially designated global terrorist Yassin al-Qadi. FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds' revelations last year that bin Laden was actively working with the U.S. government right up to the day of 9-11. Or the FBI agents who were frustrated by their own superiors in their attempts to detain and question the alleged 9-11 hijackers before 9-11 that they joked that Osama bin Laden had a mole working in the FBI headquarters. 
No word yet on how the establishment parties of the left or right will attempt to spin this latest video from the Pentagon-controlled war on terror asset to their political advantage. On a lighter note, Toronto Police Constable Adam Josephs is suing 25 YouTube users for $1.2 million for posting comments and videos critical of him and his actions. Constable Josephs is better known as Officer Bubbles for an infamous incident that took place during the G8G20 in Toronto earlier this year. If the bubble touches me, I'm going to be arrested for assault. Do you understand me? Bubbles. Yes, that's right. It's a deliberate act on your behalf. I'm going to arrest you. Do you understand me? Right, you're going to be in handcuffs. All right? You either knock it off with the bubble, you touch me with that bubble, you're going into custody. Right? I'm putting it away. Right, thank you. But I would also like to know... You want to bait the police. Throw that on me or that other officer and it gets in her eyes. It's a detergent. You'll be going into custody. I understand Do we understand that. each other? I do. I would put it away. I am doing that at this moment. Right. I would really appreciate Discussion's it. over. If we could treat me with a bit of respect. I just did. I just did. I... You got what you deserve. You got my respect. Right? I don't feel very respected. I'm just... That's terrible. Trying to That's keep you happy. My heart bleeds. The incident gave rise to a popular series of parody animations on YouTube that depict Officer Bubbles in a series of situations arresting people at will for made-up infractions of non-existent laws, evidently intended to satirize the original bubble-blowing incident. Now, Officer Bubbles has launched a lawsuit against YouTube users to sue them for comments and videos because, according to his lawyer, the free speech of anonymous commenters on YouTube was inciting death threats and threats of violence against Officer Bubbles. The lawsuit also attempts to compel YouTube to reveal the actual personally identifying information of the users who are anonymous and have been, ident have been identified in the lawsuit by their YouTube handles. One of the people named in the suit, a YouTube user known as Pussy McFats, but who has publicly revealed himself to be Todd Mara, a married father of two from Hamilton, Ontario, wrote a comment on one of the Officer Bubbles videos, quote, Officer Bubbles probably looks at himself in the mirror a lot, end quote. It's unclear exactly how this could be perceived as inciting anyone to violence or how bringing a lawsuit against someone making such a comment disproves the observation in any way. In fact, Mara was quoted this week in the Toronto Star as saying, quote, I'm a compassionate person. I don't think he should be ridiculed forever because of this. I was done with this in June. I left my comment and never thought about it again, end quote. At this time, it is not known how the case will proceed or if YouTube will be compelled to reveal the identity of users who dared to criticize the actions of Constable Josephs. Now please go to CorbettReport.com to download the audio mp3 of episode 156 of the Corbett Report podcast, Foreclosuregate, where we talk to Bob Chapman of the International Forecaster and Max Kaiser of MaxKaiser.com about the deliberate fraud perpetrated by the Wall Street banks on the American public in the housing market and what it means for the future of the world economy. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 156 of the Corbett Report podcast, Foreclosure Gate. So for those of you who have been living under a rock for the last few weeks and have somehow managed to uh, avoid all of the news and information coming out about the unbelievable fraud that's taking place in the American mortgage industry right now, 
let's start breaking it down and going through what exactly is happening and what the real issue here is. And in order to start doing that, let's start with the time-tested and trusted method of taking a look at the establishment media mouthpieces and their propaganda and dissecting that, and then getting into what is really happening. So let's start by taking a listen to PBS, PBS's NewsHour, that bastion of journalistic integrity, which of course has no interest in anything other than telling you the straight, unadulterated truth by completely and utterly managing to avoid the word fraud. Patricia Antrobus lives in a turn-of-the-20th-century house in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn. This house my father bought on the GI Bill when I was one year old. I love this house. You know, it's my sanctuary. It's my, it's my, 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 uh, what is it, Scarlet? It's my Tara. It's, it's, it's everything to me. It's also her money pit. In 2004, Antrobus, a school secretary, got a mortgage so she could buy out her siblings. Repair bills soon forced a refinance. When the roof goes and you have a $6,000 water main break at the same time, you know, I did do a couple of refinances just to try and keep this place together. She wound up owing nearly half a million dollars. Her payments dependent on the tenants upstairs paying rent, her son downstairs helping out. Then came the Great Recession, laying them all off, save Antrobus. And that just skews the whole thing because I don't have a lot of room and wiggle room, you know, to, to pay everybody. Three years later, Antrobus fell behind. The bank moved to foreclose. But at the 11th hour, in what might be Exhibit A of the foreclosure freeze now threatening the nation, her house was saved by a New York State Supreme Court judge who noticed something fishy in the foreclosure papers. In 1661 Worthington Road, West Palm Beach, Florida, Suite 100. That's the same address given by three financial institutions listed in Antropus's documents. The same address Judge Arthur Schack had also seen for two other major financial institutions in other cases. It didn't add up. How do five different banks end up or entities end up in the same office? Why does somebody, one week is the pre vice president of Bank X and next week is the vice president of Bank Y and then they go back to Bank X two weeks later? It, 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 it's just very questionable. When he looked further, Schack found enough flaws to begin throwing foreclosures like Antrobus's out of court. Three years later, the flaws he found have become embodied in robo-signers. Employees of GMAC, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America, a NewsHour underwriter, each of whom has admitted, under oath, to signing foreclosure papers at the rate of at least several thousand a month, like robots. Their banks have now halted foreclosures, in some cases nationwide. And Judge Shack claims he's seen more robo-signers at other banks that could make matters worse. But at Bank of America, which services 14 million mortgages, Rebecca Marone says they're responding. We want to make sure that all of our processes, whether it's affidavit signing or whether it's notary or whether it's other foreclosure processes, are met 100% of the time on requirements. But based on our assessment, we do believe that the underlying facts of the foreclosure and the decisions are accurate. 
We are working to ensure that our processes and procedures are following guidelines and requirements at this time. So you might have used so-called robo-signers, but that doesn't invalidate the foreclosure itself? Yeah, the underlying facts of the foreclosure and the data is accurate. But legally accurate, asks Judge Shack. All of them? My concern is if you're going to take away somebody's house, let's follow the law when we do this. So let's have it done correctly. But so much of this is legal boilerplate anyway. I mean, I, I punch agree to all kinds of stuff online that I, I never read. Well, but, but by signing your name, it says you, did agree, you read it and you agree to it. But the point is with these documents, when it's an affidavit of merit, it means that the person ha has said that, as swearing that they, they're familiar with the facts of the case. And if they're not, it becomes very, very questionable as to whether it's legally correct. Because if they didn't do that, any numbers could be in. Of course. Uh, and you could have, well, why don't we have Mickey Mouse sign the thing instead of having a, a human being sign it? I mean, it's, it becomes meaningless. I mean, that's the whole concept behind, the, behind this getting a judgment, is that uh, everything, is, everything is truthful. If we don't know if it's truthful, why, why are we even signing this stuff? In fact, after listening to that report, one could be forgiven for actually thinking that this whole scandal isn't so bad after all. It's just a few overworked banks that got a little bit sloppy with their paperwork. And there were some F-words mentioned in that report. Of course, foreclosure. There was even the word faulty, faulty paperwork. Yes, like it was just a, a little bit of an error committed by some clerks and nothing really to, to get too worried about. But, uh, oh, did you catch that little tiny one-second aside that they made during that report? And Bank of America, a NewsHour underwriter... Yes, that one. Let, let's listen to that again. And Bank of America, a NewsHour underwriter... Oh, I see. So the benevolent and all-loving Bank of America is paying for this report, which then goes on to talk to Bank of America representatives and give their spin on the story, uh, to basically tell you that everything's okay, go back to sleep, and continue paying your mortgage, because it's all good. And of course, in the entirety of that report, which you can watch online, and you can find a link to that through the documentation section for today's episode, but that entire report goes on in great length and detail to absolutely and utterly avoid placing blame on anyone in particular, or questioning the system itself for this unbelievable fraud that's going on. So, as, as always, we are left once again to turn to the alternative media and independent analysts for the straight dope on what's really going on. And to that end, it was my great pleasure to talk to the always straight-talking Max Kaiser of MaxKaiser.com earlier this week about what is really going on in Foreclosuregate and what is really at stake. Well, first thing that sticks out is three words, rule of law. And apparently, the rule of law doesn't apply anymore in the United States. That's the big joke. Anyone who thought that the rule of law in the Republic was meaningful, the joke's on you. Because if you have more than a certain minimum net worth, laws don't apply with you, to you, and you can break them with impunity. And I just saw a quote from the CEO of the Bank of America saying that, we know we broke the law with these foreclosures, but heck, we got to defend our shareholders. So they're pulling up the drawbridges. It's back to neo-feudal times. You, the peasants. Me, the peasants. Indentured servants on the new Obama debt plantations. Uh, we got no recourse. No way to uh, address our grievances. We're basically being sent out to Sherwood Forest to uh, fend for ourselves. But anyway, that's now, unfortunately, not going to be reversed. The 
the, the unless you want to rewrite Magna Carta, you want to restage the Declaration of Independence, you want to restage the Revolutionary War, and you want to recreate the Constitution of the United States, that's uh, not going to happen. Uh, the U.S. is disenfranchised, and uh, 330 million Americans are basically only hope is that someday soon they'll be hired on uh, cotton plantations because the price of cotton will be so high uh, and the dollar so cheap that uh, the only job available for everybody in America will be picking cotton. So get used to that old that old cotton-picking song. Jump down, turn around, pick a bit of cotton. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to this fraud, there's four distinct pieces to it uh, on the foreclosure fraud. Number one, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, the mortgages were fraudulently sold to people. There was uh, fraudulent inducement. Uh, we know that in 2004, the FBI launched a major investigation into wide-scale mortgage fraud. Uh, the, a liar's loan, as the bankers were calling them, there's no such thing as a liar's loan. I mean, a mortgage is supposed to have some expectation of somebody paying back the mortgage. Uh, if you're selling them something that there is no expectation, it, you, the seller, are breaking the law. So they, they committed fraud in selling millions of mortgages. Number two, they try to foreclose on these mortgages. Uh, and they're breaking the law again. Uh, this law in particular, there's one uh, interstate notary law that they've just chosen to ignore. It looks like Obama is going to forgive them and give them retroactive immunity from the law, just like Obama gave the telecom companies retroactive immunity when they found Verizon and those other companies spying on people illegally in America. Again, no such thing as the rule of law. Number three, they packaged up these mortgages into mortgage-backed securities, knowing that they were worthless, and sold them to pension funds where they're rotting and going to zero, so people are going to be victimized a third way. Number four, banks like Goldman Sachs, of course, knowing that they were selling worthless mortgages, decided to make huge negative bets against the very things that they were selling, putting billions of dollars in their pockets, and of course Wall Street will have $144 billion in bonuses again this year, by making bets and inside information and market manipulation on things that they know are bad because they package them, and now they're in the pension accounts, of course, they'll go to zero. So there's four distinct aspects of the fraud that have been committed by the banks. And the response from Obama and the Justice Department is, well, you know, if we have to, we'll just either give them impunity, immunity from the law, or we'll just change the law. But for whatever, whatever happens, there's absolutely no way that we can allow any banker to uh, suffer any inconvenience as a result of their multi-trillion dollar fraud. And that's the state of play today. Well, how about this for another layer of fraud? Apparently, the investment banks hired a uh, due diligence firm called Clayton Holdings to examine the, the mortgage-backed securities that they were buying from the banks uh, if, and to test the mortgages to see if they really were as good as, and safe and sound as the banks were trying to portray them as. And when they found out that they were not, they didn't actually scrap the deal, as you would assume. They instead negotiated for a lower price with the banks and then passed it on to their investors without letting them know anything at all about the due diligence that they'd conducted on the mortgages to show that they were unsafe. So there's fraud there after fraud go. after fraud after fraud after fraud, layer after layer right. after layer. And, of course, the Moody's and S&P, they gave their blessing to all these fraudulent deals, so they're part of the racket. You've got big money managers like Bill Gross at PIMCO who gave his blessings to these frauds, so he's in on the racket. He trades on inside information, has been pointed out by Zero Hedge on a number of occasions. You've got the investment banks, the money managers, the politicians. They're in on the racket. So you've got this 
wide-scale racketeering. And until somebody takes these folks down to the courthouse and charges them with racketeering, as they should be, then there will be no abatement of the criminality, which is tearing up the fabric of the U.S. economy. Because the judges are not in on the system as well? Well, the judges, uh, a couple of them are trying to make um, inroads. You know, I guess uh, a couple of judges are demanding uh, that notes are being produced, etc. But on the federal level, uh, we see, you know, Obama put in this pocket veto about the, uh, the, the problem with the interstate notary issue. He said, uh, and, and they wanted to change the law to allow banks to lower the bar to their notary requirements so they wouldn't have any uh, suffering as a part of their criminal behavior. So he made that a pocket veto. And I, there's no reason to believe that after the election, he won't revisit that and give them uh, immunity as he did with the telecom companies and as he does with everybody else. I mean, Obama is just a guy who is um, a crook. Well, that's that's a pretty succinct way of saying it. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when I first heard you using terms like uh, controlled demolition of the economy and financial terrorists, I thought it was just a, an interesting, you know, choice of words to get people interested in the issue. But it's really true. It's really, truly true. These are financial terrorists who are de demolishing the economy on purpose. What what is what is happening and how can these people be stopped? Well, I mean, to, to add to a fifth layer of to the four we uh, outlined, there's also the fifth element, which are the credit default swaps, which is essentially insurance fraud. So again, Goldman Sachs, they have insured the collapse of these securities three or four times over again using credit default swaps. So they sell these short, uh, they know that they're going to blow up, they blow up, and they also get cash in on the insurance. So that's insurance fraud to add to this mix of criminality. So you've got basically on an ideological level what I call suicide bankers and financial terrorism because they follow extremist ideology. Lloyd Blankfein, when he says he's doing God's work, well, let's see, who are the other extremists out there? Islamic extremists who think they're doing God's work, check. Okay, he misreads a basic book that misinforms him about his actions. Well, he's got Islamic extremists misreading the Koran. Lloyd Blankfein misreads Adam Smith's Wealth of Nation, selectively pulling text uh, bits out of that book to support his ideological extremist views. Okay, uh, uh, extremism in Islam, suicide bombers. Okay, how about Wall Street? Well, get suicide bankers. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, uh, these people who are willing to blow up their economy, blow themselves up for their, their extremist ideology. So you've got two major extremist ideologies. You've got Islamic extremist ideology, and you've got American Wall Street financial extremist ideologies. They're both at war now in the currency pits, and they're shooting trillion-dollar cannons of fiat currency at each other, and their objective is complete and utter destruction of the global economy. And, and, and the, the only market that's telegraphing what's really going on, obviously, is gold, because people realize that, well, if every fiat currency in the world is going to collapse due to these psychopaths, then you got to own gold. And that's why gold keeps hitting new all-time highs every month. The always straight-talking Max Kaiser of MaxKaiser.com. And I think the only thing that Max really needed to add to that equation to draw out the parallel in full is to point out that the Islamic extremists are, generally speaking, muddle-headed, below-par intelligence socially marginalized figures who would have absolutely no effect in or ability to pull off any type of a terror attack, let alone wide-scale or 
Spectacular terror attacks like 9-11, if it weren't for the benevolent helping hand of organizations and intelligence agencies like the CIA in founding, creating, funding, and generally empowering these terrorists and their phony organizations. But yes, the point is well taken that the financial terrorists on Wall Street really are blowing up the world economy, and as we have explained time and time again on this podcast, this is all a well-planned and completely deliberate implosion of the economy in order to clear the decks for the bringing in, the ushering in of the completely controlled world economy, dictated by completely undemocratic and completely non-transparent organizations like the International Monetary Fund, which is in the back pocket of the Western oligarchical elites. Now, for more information on Foreclosure Gate and some of the details of the ins and outs of this com completely mind-boggling fraud and the, the really difficult-to-comprehend scale of what we're facing, we'd have to turn to places like Washington's blog at georgewashington2.blogspot.com, which I have found to be an incredibly valuable tool for parsing through what's going on, as well as to Zero Hedge, which has also been a great site for keeping tabs on what's really going on in Foreclosure Gate. But right now, let's turn to another extremely interesting and extremely informed economic analyst who is going to tell it the way it is, and that's the always insightful Bob Chapman of The International Forecaster. You know, I've been reading up on this for, uh, for a few days now and trying to get my head around it, but the size and the scale and the scope of what we're facing here is, is still staggering to me. And you hit on one of the, or quite a few of the key topics there, but one of the key aspects of this is the fact that a lot of the, the title's ownership is in question because of the way that these mortgages were not just being sold by the lenders, but were being bundled up as mortgage-backed securities and sold and resold. So perhaps we can go a little bit into that and, and how that relates to this whole mess. Well, the securitization process was something relatively new to the brokerage firms uh, and the banking and even insurance in this particular area. Uh, debt had always been packaged and sold, uh, credit card debt, automobile and truck debt, and uh, and then you had the commercial paper market, although it's collateralized with some sort of other paper. In other words, let's say that you're a company and you want to uh, fulfill an order for a million widgets, and you just got the order, and you do have good collateral, but you would like to borrow, say, three or three and a half percent monies to be able to complete the, the, the widget contract, which will be done in three months. You know that because that's what you do for a living. And so they would go to the commercial paper market and they would borrow the money. And sometimes they would put up treasuries or they might even put up these MBS and ABS and, and, and CDOs, which are bonds which contain mortgages. So these syndicated mortgages were used for a number of things collateral as well as anything else. And so when they were rated, they were rated AAA for the most part. And they weren't AAA. And the agencies rating them, S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, mostly uh, S&P and Moody's. The proper rating probably would have been a triple B. 
and the difference between a 10 and a 4 on a scale. And so in collusion and in conspiracy uh, with the creators of these syndicated tranches, as they're called, bonds, uh, they were mislabeled in the first place. Uh, second of all, uh, the bonds consisted of mortgages, but sometimes <laughs> they would have pieces of mortgages. And in order to enhance the bond itself, they may take a portion of mortgages and only inject into it the part of the mortgage where the payment was made and the capital asset of the mortgage itself might go into another syndicated bond. And so this is why it's so hard to find out where everything is without going back through everything that could, which could take them 10 years because there's so many of them as well. And so these bonds were sold. They were sold at par, which is $1,000. And they immediately started to sell a discount. And they were, the bonds were selling at $80 and $800 instead of 1000 And that went on for some time. And then what happened was that these bonds, which had been sold uh, 60% in Europe, uh, for the most part, 40% in the United States, they began to have problems. And the problems were the falling in the value of real estate and the real estate industry itself. And so they continued to fall in value. That brought about the credit crisis three years ago. And in that crisis, what happened was that a lot of these lending institutions had these syndicated bonds on their books because they hadn't been able to sell them all. They didn't have enough time. The real estate market sort of like jumped up out of like Jack out of the Jack in the Box and they were caught flat-footed. And so this led to the insolvency of all of these banks. That was ameliorated by the Fed Reserve and the Treasury through things such as TARP. And what government did was lend money in an impossible low rate to these lending institutions. And they were able to fake it, so to speak, and stay in business. And the Fed arranged all sorts of nuances where they would make profits. And, of course, the people who owned the Fed were the people who were in the most trouble. J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and prior to that, uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, which went bankrupt. And so you had this foul kettle of fish, and how do you get rid of it? Well, the buyer of last resort was the Fed. Uh, their announced purchase this past year was $1.7 trillion in what they call toxic bonds, which are these bonds that contain mortgages. And so the Fed bought these at, we don't know at what price because they won't tell us, but it's assumed that they bought them for 80 cents on the dollar. Uh, 
And now the same banks that sold them to the Fed are going to buy them back to loosen up and clear the Fed's balance sheets. The problem is they're going to buy them back for 20 cents on the dollar, which is their real market value. The 60 cents in between is going to be borne by the U.S. taxpayer. And they don't tell people that. And to but top it off, the, the 20 cents uh, that they are paying is, is going to be largely coming from the QE2 that the Fed's using, creating the money out of nothing to inject liquidity into the system. So it all really comes from the taxpayer at the end of the day. That's right. And, and also will inc- increase uh, the, uh, the amount of money available to the banks and it will stabilize them even more from the terrible situation that they were in this, and essentially they still are in. And so what overall has happened is that these mortgage bonds were the underlying force which created the problem as a result of what the banks had done in the formation of lending to those most of whom shouldn't have had loans in the first place. And and the prudent lender is not supposed to do that, as we know. They make mistakes. We all do. But that was deliberate. They just wanted to get everybody in the house and at the same time make a pile of money, which they did. And so they let all these loose ends fly at loose ends. And what has happened is we have the crisis and part of the crisis is not only not doing the paperwork property properly, not having title, having sole title, acting as agent, when in fact the title is floating around the world someplace in the form of a bond with a whole bunch of other mortgages. And so it's not easy for the public to understand. And that's understandable. And they, the banks, the lenders, they do that so the people don't understand because they don't want them to understand because they've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Bob Chapman of the International Forecaster, intforecaster.com, and his point is one that is well taken, and I think I have attempted to bring across in this podcast numerous times before, namely that, yes, they do use jargon and all of these acronyms and other difficult-to-understand language in order to make your eyes glaze over and make you stop paying attention to this vitally important multi-trillion dollar frauds that are being perpetrated every single day behind the curtain, behind the scenes. And yes, we are being deliberately starved of the knowledge that we need in order to help combat this problem because it does not serve the elite oligarchical interests to tell us exactly what they're doing or exactly how they're doing it. And on that regard, at least, I think George Carlin was very right when he was telling you that it does not serve their interests for to have a educated, informed public. So we do not have an educated, informed public. So it is important that we do actually take the time and put in the effort and energy to learn at least some of this jargon and what it really means. And I would highly suggest listeners to check into, I think, probably a quite new site that I've only recently come across called Foreclosure Fraud. That's the number four, closurefraud.org. 
which I haven't had time to review very much of, but from what I've seen, it seems to be an excellent resource, and I'll put in a link to an, basically just a short post breaking down the meaning of securitization and mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps, all of which figure prominently in the mortgage securities fraud story of foreclosure gate. And again, it's just simple definitions, but it really does help people to start to come to a better understanding of the ways that they are being bilked out of their own homes because of bankers doing financial wizardry behind the scenes, behind the curtain. And that is basically what it boils down to, is just complete and outright fraud taking place at levels that hitherto was hardly imaginable. And I suppose I probably don't need to expound too much on just what is at stake here, but let's back it up in another way, and let's take a look at what this might ultimately be leading to. And in order to do that, we're going to take a listen to Pastor Lindsay Williams, who recently appeared on The Alex Jones Show, to talk more about what his ex-Big 3 oil CEO inside source has told him about what is to come in the economy. And remember, this is not just the rantings of someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. Lindsay Williams, of course, accurately predicted two or three months before oil prices precipitously fell from their $150 highs down to $50 seeming lows just a couple of years ago. He predicted that months in advance when absolutely no expert in the world was predicting such a precipitous fall in oil prices. So it has been shown to occur in the past, some of these things that his inside source is telling him about. And for more on that story and who Lindsay Williams is and what he's up to, I'll direct you to prophecyclub.com where you can find out more about Lindsay Williams and order copies of his DVD, etc. But right now, let's take a listen to what Pastor Williams' inside source told him about what this foreclosure crisis is really about. But everything Lindsay's covering from his top globalist source has either come true or partially true. And everything he's saying, I can analyze from the outside. We've been predicting for forever. And now it's here. But from the analyst I've talked to, from my own view, we know the top globalist, above even the banks, engineered this bubble to then hold the world hostage, to bankrupt all the pension funds, to steal all the retirees' money, and then hold you hostage and say, give us even more power, let us raise taxes to prop all this up or it's all going down. But you notice as you prop it up, it just continues to cascade into more crises. And in my notes here... Feds will own every mortgage in America. That's the plan. The globalists make the money on the way up. Then they get the mortgages bailed out two years ago, again and again and again. And then it clouds all property rights law, not just here, but all over the world. And they'll say, okay, we'll fix your mortgages. But they already passed a law two weeks ago that Obama hadn't signed yet. He pocket vetoed it, meaning he can bring it up after the uh, election in a few weeks. And they're saying he's going to do that to allow banks to take houses without proper titles. So... That's the, that's the pitch. Oh, we'll fix all this. We'll fix the banking system or it's all going down, but let us take property without any real deed, without chain of title. And then the precedent set for even more looting and stealing. Then we have the executive orders of Bush and Obama saying for any crisis, including economic and PDD 51, the presidential decision director says the same thing. The Congress can be suspended for six months. The president can do anything he wants. Europe has passed similar laws. We're about to go to break, Lindsay, and then take calls, but finishing up with the mortgage issue and what he told you. The elitists have engineered this. 
They know exactly what they're doing. They want a crisis to grow so big that they're basically just waiting until it can grow so large that they can say to the Federal Reserve, you've got to bail us out. Of course, they'll do it through the Treasury of the United States of America like they've done the other bailout programs of GN and Chrysler and AIG. And they'll say, there's no way. The world is going to collapse. Uh, the sky is going to fall in. And so as a result, you can expect in the future, and this is what the elite want, they want the government to step in and bail out these mortgage-backed securities, and it's going to take an original bailout somewhere between the tune of 2 and $7 trillion. That's the original bailout. It could go as far as $45 trillion if they bailed out everything that's out there. Now, what's this going to bring about? Oh, this is the scary part. Whenever this happens, now, this man told me two years ago, and I couldn't comprehend what he was saying. He said, after two years, you will be so poor. And he said, again, after two years, nearly everyone will be working for the government. Folks, when they bail out this mortgage-backed securities issue that we've got right now, the elite will own, folks, are you getting this? The elite will own every piece of mortgage real estate in the United States of America, both commercial and residential, and you will make your house payment to the elite because they will own it through the Federal Reserve, which they are. And that's how and they're the taking houses the that are even, they're even taking houses that are paid for because the note was sold to so many people, they're all coming to get it. And That's right. If you have bought a house within the past three years that was repossessed, you probably do not own clear title to it, and they can come in and take it. You you will be their slave. Oh, Alex, I don't know how to say to these no, people. No, no, that's how it works. The government, Israel and the U.S., releases the worm and says we got to take the web over. Uh, they... Uh, create the mortgage crisis and then say we got to take over to save it and then it only gets worse. I mean, this is what they do. Certainly the stakes in this unbelievable epidemic fraud that is currently looting the American economy of trillions of dollars and placing the world in debt servitude to the same banksters that have controlled our society for generations, well, the stakes could not be higher. And it is extremely easy to feel simply victimized by all of this and to go into a catatonic fear state where you basically can't operate or can't think of how to possibly combat these things. Because, of course, a few short years ago, very, very few people outside of the financial wizardry circles knew anything at all about mortgage-backed securities or credit default swaps or all of the other financial wizardry that has been taking place behind the curtains and has been basically selling us all into slavery without us even knowing about it. So it does often seem like there's nothing that we can do to possibly combat this. But there is, and it is important that we do understand that we always do have the power, and it is only by our quiet, passive compliance with the system that the system can wield its power over us. And if it's our compliance that makes us so susceptible to the system's ways, then it is only through our non-compliance that we can hope to take the system back. The notices came to her home in April. Andrea Geis's bank foreclosed on her. Behind in payments, out of work, a husband sick, she had nowhere to go. So she decided to follow the advice of her congresswoman and go nowhere. Geis is part of a new movement in the housing crisis, squatters. For lack of a better term, you're kind of squatting in this house, aren't you? Basically, yes. More than 4,000 properties were foreclosed on in Toledo's Lucas County last year. 
This year, it could be worse. Elected officials are saying Toledo is not in a recession. It is a depression. It is this bleak backdrop that inspired Toledo Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur to take the floor of the House earlier this month to tell her constituents to stay put. So I say to the American people, you'll be squatters in your own homes. Don't you leave. Kaptur says she has had it with government bailouts for Wall Street banks, but nothing for homeowners. She is advocating for a legal revolution, a demand that not one of her constituents leaves their home without an attorney and a fight. Even if they've been foreclosed on, don't leave. If they've had no legal representation of a high quality, I tell them stay in their homes. Captor is behind a strategy called Produce the Note. Mortgages have been so divvied up on Wall Street that banks are having a hard time finding that original paperwork, adding a delay to foreclosures. They're vultures. They prey on our property assets. And I guess the reason I'm so adamant on this is because I know property law and its power to um, protect the individual homeowner. And I believe that 99.9% of our people have not, have, have not had good legal representation in this. As you may have heard, Congress has already passed a bill that will basically allow banks to do whatever they want and to break whatever laws they want in the pursuit of these foreclosures, and the, only the pocket veto that Obama used to stall the signing of that bill until after the elections has actually postponed that decision. But rest assured, as soon as the elections are out of the way and there's no Democratic nomination hopefuls to hurt by such a move, President Obama is going to rubber stamp it because his administration is, and always has been, as we've pointed out from before day one, the Goldman Sachs administration. It is government Sachs, and they are very much invested in the Wall Street wizardry system and keeping that going as long as possible until every last red penny has been wrung from the pockets of the American people, and indeed the people of the world, including residents of countries like Japan, that rest very much on the American economy. So like it or not, if they scuttle this ship of the USS USA, then we are all going down with it, and this is not a good situation for anyone. The only thing we can do is to try to take the power back into the people's hands and to stop complying with their system because we cannot be held accountable for debts racked up through frauds that we didn't even know were taking place. And now, as always, it's incumbent on each of you out there to help spread the word about what is really happening and what can be done to counteract it. And we must start forming the communities that will be the linchpin of the resistance to the economic new world order that is being constructed. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.
Well, the Kroger Report is the linchpin of the <laughs> resistance movement. I mean, if you, anyone is not listening and watching the Kroger <laughs> Report, it is clearly at a disadvantage. You know I'm going to clip that and use that as a clip for my site. But uh, anyway. <laughs> Please do. I listen, James, I mean, he, I've been on the James story for quite some time now. I mean, I know that you've got, that your fan base is huge, and they're keeping it on the real. 